Well, good morning. How are we? Good, good. If you have a Bible, turn me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one around you. Uh, page 906 in your chair Bible, and I think it'll be on the screen too. And uh, this morning, we're going to be uh, starting a new series. Uh, we just finished up a series in the I Am Statements of John's Gospel. And what we can learn from those I Am Statements are, are very profound of how we understand uh, who Jesus is, who God is, and what he's done, come to accomplish. But what we're going to do for the next seven weeks is actually look at the post-resurrection stories of Jesus and the people that Jesus encounters and why those are so significant for understanding, again, who God is, but also how we are to relate to this same God. And, and I, I'd be willing to uh, submit to you, and maybe you've been around the church or haven't been around the church or you're familiar with the scriptures or aren't familiar with the scriptures, but I haven't heard a lot of stories about the people that Jesus encounters post-resurrection and why that's significant. Uh, we love the cross, amen. We, we love the empty tomb, amen. But, but what about when Jesus is fully alive post-resurrected and beginning to encounter people like Mary Magdalene that we'll look at today and then Thomas, you know, good old doubting Thomas and, and the disciples and Peter and, and, and all these people. And, and, you know, Jesus comes in there fishing and he just says, hey, let's eat, right? Like, what does that mean? Is, what's the significance of, of, of that? And, and Jesus' ascension, we're going to look at that as well. And also we'll move into Pentecost uh, when the Holy Spirit comes. And, and, and it's very enlightening for us. And John is going to go to great lengths in John's gospel of helping us see why this is significant, why it's significant of the people that Jesus interacts with. And he goes to great lengths to spell out the details of this resurrection and how Jesus is fully alive and then what it means for us to encounter uh, this same uh, Jesus. And so if you have a Bible, John chapter 20, we're going to read the first uh, 18 verses there where he encounters Mary Magdalene. So John chapter 20 says this, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that, the, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Verse 11, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and she wept. She stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, 
and that he had said these things to her. And this is the word of God for us this morning. And so there's a lot of interesting things happening here as Jesus has been resurrected bodily from the grave, and now he encounters uh, uh, Mary. And, and I was kind of thinking about this this week. Is, is I don't know if you've heard, but these, these new Marvel movies, I guess they're kind of a big deal uh, that people really get into these days. Um, and and uh, Scott McDougal can give you a lesson on that and how many there are and, and with the timeline and all of that. But I think there's like 22. Am I correct in that? Uh, 22 movies, right? And, and so when you watch a movie and, and, and you get to the end, there's always this sense of like, what's next? Like, is there more, right? It kind of, uh, and if it's a good movie, you always know that like the sequels, it's setting up for the sequel. Um, and if you're a fan of Back to the Future, as I mentioned in my uh, Easter sermon, uh, in one of the movies it actually says to be continued. So you're like, okay, great. At least I know there's going to be another one. I'm pretty excited about that. But this is kind of what is going on with the resurrection stories. It, it's what's next, Jesus. Okay, you've been telling us for three years that you're going to, to, to die on the cross and then you're going to resurrect from the dead. And yet what we see here in Mary's encounters is they're not fully understanding what is going on. W- what's next? Now what? Okay, you've risen from the dead. What what are the implications of that? And and when we look at John's gospel, specifically, because there's other accounts of the resurrection, obviously, in the other gospels, Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke, is John is going to go to great lengths to make sure that when we read these post-resurrection stories, that one, that the historical evidence of Jesus being bodily raised from the dead is very, very clear that he's not going to mince any words, and he's going to go to great lengths and make sure that the details of the actual story, the historicity, if you will, of the resurrection is very clear. Because as you've heard me say a million times, is that our faith is not a leap into the dark. Faith is not just leaping into the dark and hoping this God did what he said he did, and maybe in the end it'll all work out. But the Gospels are going to go to great lengths, and our faith is always rooted in, in history and what God has acted in time and in space. And that's why these accounts are written down. So, so that we would actually have a faith that's not just rooted in jumping and leaping into the dark, but actually rooted in time and place and things that happened and the people that encountered the same Jesus. In case in point, uh, in the first century, if you're going to tell a, a, a fairy tale or a fantasy, and, and the first person that's going to see the tomb that is empty is not going to be a woman. Because in the first century, women had, had no authority. They, they, if they were in the court of law, even their testimony would be invalid just for the sake of being women. So if I'm going to tell a fake story about something that didn't really happen, and it's just a, a mythical, metaphorical thing of, of just you know some God who came and, and he loved people and he's a wise teacher, but he didn't really resurrect from the dead, I'm not going to include Mary and the other women that saw Jesus raised from the dead because nobody would listen to them. So so John's going to go to great lengths to make sure that the evidence, the details are in place, but he's also going to go to great lengths uh, to to say, well, what does it mean to be a disciple (laughs) post-resurrection? Like, what does it mean to follow Jesus now that he has been resurrected from the dead? So as he encounters Mary, and as he encounters Thomas, and as he encounters the disciples and goes fishing with them, well, what does it mean for us to follow this same Jesus? What does our relationship with him look like? What does that even mean? And I love John's gospel uh, specifically, and you've heard me say this before as we've gone through John a couple times, is that I love that he gives the purpose of the book and why he's detailed all these things. And in John 20, 30, he says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So there's a lot of other things that happened as well. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's John's mission of his book. 
I'm laying out all these details. I'm showing you that Jesus is resurrected from the dead, that he's encountered this Mary, this Thomas, this disciple. So that what? So that you would believe that he is the Son of God, that he is trustworthy, and that you would have life in his name. So it's not, when we preach and teach, it's not so we can just go, oh, that's nice information. It's so that you and I would have life in his name. That What John said in John 10.10, 10, that we would have abundant life, the life that Jesus offers us. Because if resurrection didn't happen... The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 said, our faith is futile. What we're doing here is futile. We might as well go, as I say, go watch the Chiefs. They're not on yet. But, or, or, or Royals. Or I mean, that's, you shouldn't do that. That's bad for your soul. But <laughs> we might as well just go to the park and hang it up. Like, what we're doing here matters not in the least bit. But if resurrection happens, we're not in our sins anymore. We are for, forgiven, and a whole new world has opened up. So, so what do we learn from Mary specifically in this encounter uh, this morning. So let, let's look at that specifically. That's, that's the point here. So there's, there's three main things that I want to kind of point out this morning as Jesus, as Mary encounters the, the post-resurrected Jesus. And, and one is a new, new perspective on reality, a new power for living, and a new relationship to enjoy. So a new perspective on reality. W- what do I mean by that? That sounds like a very high flutin uh, statement. Well, when I say reality, and I, I say that all the time in my sermons, I say that all the time, is, is when I think about reality, I, I simply mean with how the Bible defines truth. So, so in other words, how the Bible defines how things really are. Like in our lives, how God is, how the world works, all those kinds of things. How the universe works in light of Scripture. And, and when I say reality, that's, that's what I mean. Because before you were a Christian, you had all these ideas of, of how the world is, and, and you had a particular worldview, and, and, and God's always renewing our minds, renewing our hearts to help us understand more how His world is, and, and how we are, and why things are the way they are. One of the great texts I love when I was a new believer was Romans chapter 1. Because when you read Romans chapter 1, what you begin to realize is, oh, that's why we are where we are. Because we haven't worshipped God, we haven't thanked God, we, we've replaced God, and we've worshipped all his stuff. And there's this prophetic thing that happens in Romans 1, that if we try to live our lives apart from God, it's all going to go haywire and go crazy. And I go, oh yeah, that's what happened to me. Oh, that's what happened to anyone that didn't follow Christ, and now they, they follow Christ. That's what's happening with all the injustice, and why there's not clean water in, in Africa. It's because Romans 1 makes it very clear, this is reality. This is how things are. This is where things are, are headed. And so, so when we think about a new perspective on reality, we're trying to understand this world in which Mary inhabits and you and I inhabit and how things are and how things work. And the resurrection is going to give her a new perspective on this reality and how the universe functions. I love the way Francis Schaeffer said in, in a book called Christian Manifesto, he says, true spirituality covers all of reality. There are things the Bible tells us to do as absolutes, which are sinful, which do not conform to the character of God. But aside from these things, the lordship of Christ covers all of life and all of life equally. It is not only that true spirituality covers all of life, but it covers all parts of the spectrum of life equally. In this sense, there is nothing concerning reality that is not spiritual. See, what we do is we make, this is spiritual, what we're doing on Sundays is spiritual, but what we do on Monday around our tables in our homes isn't spiritual anymore. Or, or what I do at work on Monday, or, or, or what I do in my neighborhood, or the, the time I spend out in the community, whatever it is, that's not spiritual. What's spiritual is reading my Bible and coming to church, which is included in that. 
So if Jesus is Lord over all things, what, what God is doing through his resurrection is showing us that, that God is Lord over all things. Life and death and sin and, and everything. That, Lord, that Jesus is Lord over all creation. And he is the redeemer that is sustaining all things. And so here's Mary encountering this Jesus. And notice in verse 1, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, she comes to the tomb early. It's still dark. Uh, she sees that the stone has been taken away. And, and we, we already begin to get a sense that she's a little bit confused. She, she has a different worldview that she's working with. Now, here, here's a Jewish woman that probably knows the, the Old Testament scriptures pretty well, has a vague idea of, of resurrection. But as Jesus is talking about that, I'm going to raise from the dead, she doesn't have a category for that. It's not what she's expecting. Because look at her interaction, and it's very clear she doesn't expect it. Right? She went to Simon and Peter and the other disciple, and Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Right? She's confused. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb. Both of them were running together. There's a lot of running in this, this uh, account. It fits well with world vision. Um, I, just try, I was trying to tie it in, just trying to be relevant here. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb fast. And stooping in, he looked, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which has been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, folded up in a place by itself. And then we see Mary in verses 11 and, and, and following that she's, she's weeping at the tomb because that's not, she wasn't expecting resurrection. That wasn't her reality. That wasn't her worldview. That, that's not what was, dead people aren't supposed to come back to life. Messiahs aren't supposed to come back to life, but here he is, fully alive. It's this, this new perspective on reality. But, it, but if we, if we kind of dig in a little bit further into the text, we, we see John. John is a master of using symbols and metaphor to help us understand truth and what is going on here. Did you notice that it's dark in the tomb? That it's, it's the morning and it's dark on the first day of the week. It's, it's dark out, which, which is obviously true. But isn't that interesting that when God created the world, the world was dark. It was in darkness. Is he doing something here? Now, again, he, this is history, right? This, is, this happened. It was actually dark. But in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. I don't think it's accident that it's dark on the morning that Mary finds Jesus resurrected from the dead. That, that as God created the world, it was in darkness. It didn't have void. And so it wasn't until the Spirit came and gave it shape. And then it wasn't until God said, let there be light, that there was light. Now, this is very common John, if you have read John's Gospel at all. Because in John chapter 1, he does something very similar with creation. When he describes Jesus, he says, in the beginning was the Word. That sounds like creation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This Jesus, the Creator God, the Redeemer God, was coming back to life to bring light into the darkness. This is what we call new creation. 
This is not random and accident. These details aren't just someone writing down, oh, that'd be nice. He has a very much a theological uh, uh, vision for what this means, that yes, Mary came in the dark and she didn't know what was going on, but this God was going to burst out of the dark and burst into new life and say, there's hope for the world, that the world is not a closed system, that there's something bigger going on, Mary, that you need to open your eyes to. There's a new perspective on reality that I'm giving you here, that the creator God has now come into human history and he's opening up a whole new world by his resurrection. That he's going to shine light into the darkness. Isn't it interesting that Paul, the Apostle Paul, talks very similar with, with creation language. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, probably familiar with this verse, you've been around the scriptures at all, and probably heard me mention it a few times, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says in verse 4, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants. For Jesus' sake, for God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Light, darkness. The world was dark until God breathed life into it and said, let there be light. The world was dark, but now a whole new world has opened up because Jesus walked out of the tomb. And as Mary comes in the darkness, he's saying something very profound to her, that I'm doing a new thing, Mary. The death's not going to have the last say, sin and sorrow and injustice and kids not having clean water in Africa. That's a problem. So John is going to, to great lengths to make sure that we see these, these details of Jesus' physical bodily resurrection. We even see that in, in the way he goes into detail, as I, as I just mentioned, the way the, the linen cloths were laid on the ground and the face cloth. If, if, uh, when someone would die in the first century, they would have this face cloth that would actually tie to the top of the, the person's head and actually keep their mouth shut from opening. If you're dead, you don't have much control over your face. Um, you wouldn't know that because you're all alive, but that's how that works. And so they would tie up the face to keep the, the mouth shut. So that was where the linen cloth would have been. But also the burial clothes. Now this is what's, what's again, if we're just telling a, a story or this is just, you know, somebody stole the body and Jesus really wasn't resurrected from the dead and, and all those kinds of things. Um, there would have been, I, I don't know exactly how many pounds, but a ton of pounds of uh, spices to keep the body from, from stinking because uh, if you're dead, it starts to smell. But also they'd be wrapped up with, with probably dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds, I'm not sure, of linen cloths around the body. So, so if somebody wanted to steal Jesus and, and put all these things on the side, it would be a lot of work. And that's why when you steal a body, you wouldn't um, take the, the, the clothes and the linen cloths off of them. But John's doing that very intentionally to say this is exactly how it happened. Jesus isn't here. He's alive. And he wants us to see that so that we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and we would believe that life comes in his name, that he is doing something new in our midst. Now, I also find it interesting that maybe I'm just crazy and maybe I'm just reading things into Scripture that's just not, not there. Maybe that's not John's vision at all. But isn't it interesting that the first person that Mary sees, she thinks it's the gardener? I mean, of all people, it, 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 why the gardener? Well, in a tomb would probably be in a, in a kind of a garden area, a garden tomb area, and here's this gardener, potentially. Did you catch that detail? 
verse uh, 12, and he, she saw two angels white sitting there where the body of Jesus had laid, one at the head, one at the feet. Then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said, and they've taken away the Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. So she's still confused. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Sounds like the language of new creation. This garden tomb, this is where it's happening, that the world that God made, this broken, fallen world, now broken and marred by sin, Jesus has walked out of the tomb, and the first person that Mary sees is the gardener. And what is John trying to say? New creation has come, a whole new world, a whole new perspective has opened up here. And Jesus is the gardener. (laughs) He is the master gardener. He's the one that's making all things new by his death and by his resurrection. I don't think that's random details. Now, can I do one more just because it's all there? So you don't think I'm crazy? We'll get to this um, in the future, not this sermon, but, but next. Is if you fast forward to Jesus in the upper room, if you go a couple verses to verse um, 19, it says, on the evening of that day, notice this detail, the first day of the week, which is also the same in verse 1, now the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said, said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. I've read that text a million times and said, what in the world? Why is Jesus breathing the Holy Spirit on us? Well, what happens when God creates the world? When it's chaos and without form, when it's dark, what happens? It's not until the Holy Spirit comes that the world now has order. When God breathes on his creation. What's Jesus doing here? What's John doing here? This resurrected Jesus the creator God, the redeemer God, is now breathing on his disciples and saying, here's where life is found. It's all there. It's, it's a new perspective on reality. This isn't just a trick. This isn't just uh, some kind of false piety or hope that you give people so they can get along with life. It's saying, look at the details. Look at the history. Look what Jesus is doing. Look what he's saying. Look, look who he is, that his resurrection says everything that all, all of us need, that he has overcome sin. He has overcome death. And this is why we plant churches, right? Because the tomb is empty. This is why we care about wells in Africa. Why? Because God cares about spiritual, but he also cares about the physical. Right? It's why we have a neighborhood breakfast. It's why we have a pantry out there, right? It's, it's why we study the scriptures. We care about all of these things. Why? Because the tomb is empty. Because we worship a living God. Because the universe isn't a closed system, and God is making a new thing, and he's re- renewing and restoring ultimately this world. The world that he made. The world that is marred by sin. And so all of these details are to build our own faith and say, here's the gardener who has come to bring new creation. And and maybe you caught that that little detail on the first day of the week. It's such a beautiful thing. The reason we worship on Sunday, and and they even call it the first day of the week, is because it's resurrection day. It's the first day of new creation. That's how we gather on Sundays. 
It's the eighth day of creation. God rested on the seventh. When we get together on Sunday, it's the first day of the week to celebrate that the tomb is empty, that life is here, that there's no more death and no more sin and no more decay, that God has made a way for this world and our lives to make sense. There's a lot more going on on a Sunday. Maybe you really, I'm just trying to get the kids out of the house, all this eighth day creation stuff. But that's what's going on. That's why we gather. It's because God has opened up a whole new reality by his resurrection for us. And so Mary's worldview has, is changing. Her reality is changing. She didn't expect Jesus to, to raise from the dead. She didn't expect him to come back to life. She goes to the tomb weeping because that's, that wasn't her expectations. And that's the way it's supposed to be. It's not our expectation either, right? Like we always see that as like a negative. Like, well, if you just had more faith, like no one believes in dead people coming alive. It doesn't happen <laughs> very often, <laughs> right? It would freak me out too. If Jesus just shows up in a room and is like, hey, where, let's eat. <laughs> right? It, it would have freaked me out too in the darkness of the night as Mary goes into the tomb and she's expecting him to be dead and buried with all these clothes and, and, and dead as a doornail and going, he, he's not here. Somebody took him. Nobody expected this. And the Christian faith and the gospel and Christianity is so different than every other faith. It's not expected. And yet it's the answer to all the things that all of us struggle with and all the things that our hearts long for, for things to be made right, for, for a way for our bodies not to decay, for sin to be forgiven, all these things that we know are wrong with us and wrong in the world, and yet Jesus comes and says, I'm the creator and redeemer God, and I've come into the middle of human history to say, sin and death and injustice and decay don't have the last say. That I'm not even going to wait to the end. I'm going to come right in the middle of it and give you hope. So that was a little longer for that one, but the other one's a little shorter. A new perspective on reality. But there's also a new power for living. New power for living. What do I mean by this? But, but notice where things change for Mary. What was it that changed her mind about this Jesus and his resurrection? That there was confusion beforehand, but what changed, what changed her worldview? What changed her reality? Notice with me in verse... Um, I'll just read from 15 down. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> whom are you seeking? Suppose him to be gardener. She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Again, confused. Jesus said to her, notice here, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. It wasn't until Jesus speaks Mary's name that everything changes. See, God doesn't deal in generalities in theory. He deals in practicalities and in relationship. Always. But like we think God, just nebulous God, Father, Son, Spirit, just general God. Like, yeah, he might like me. He might be into me. He might not. I don't know why he made me. All those kinds of things. But, but right here, he, he's showing this is personal. This is God of heaven and earth, the creator God, redeemer God. Can you imagine Mary standing there and the God of heaven and earth who has just resurrected from the dead says, Mary, my child. Later, Jesus is going to walk into a group of men who have betrayed him and abandoned him. And what does he say? You stinking sinners, where were you? He says, peace be with you. Let's eat. 
my translation, but he says that later. It's always personal. And what God does, why there's a new power for, for living, is that he gives us a new identity in him. That he speaks our name specifically and relationally, not in nebulous things, not in theory, right? He says her name and, he, and her eyes are open to, you're not the gardener. You are the rabbi. You are the Messiah. I, I was thinking about just names and speech and communication because I'm a pastor and I think about weird things. When a child is born from ages zero to three or so, um, one of the key things, if you're a parent, you probably know this, is, um, is you need to talk with your, to your kids a lot and, and read to them and, 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 and begin kind of developing their language. All, all the language that they kind of absorb is just from communication and talking. And if you've been in our house, we're talkers. So I feel sorry for our kids. A lot of our kids talk really early, and I think it's because we're just always talking. Um, and some didn't talk as fast because they probably couldn't get a word in. Um, but it's part of their de- development. That's how kids develop, just communication, talking. But there's also another level that they've shown in studies is that by talking, by adults talking and interacting with kids at a young age, it actually uh, creates just this, this sense of belonging, this sense of love, this sense of I, I, I'm loved by this person as much as they can communicate in that little young age. So kids that are ignored, kids that aren't talked to, kids that, that don't have this sense of, of belonging can have all kinds of problems later in life. And I, and I thought about that. I go, well, that's, Yeah. Because later in life, what do we hear? All the voices of condemnation. The, the wounds that we carry, maybe from a family member or a friend or a coworker that, that said hard things to us, condemning things to us, those, those fracture our souls, don't they? But, but here comes this, this God who, who speaks to Mary and says, says, Mary, I'm here, I'm alive. I know you don't understand everything that's going on, but, but I'm giving you a new power for living because I, I know you and you know me. It's exactly what Jesus said earlier. We went through this a few weeks ago in John 10.10. John chapter 10, I should say. 10.10 is a good verse too, but earlier in the chapter, what does Jesus say? In verse uh, 3, To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear the voice, and the calls his own sheep by name, and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus has called out, and Mary has heard his voice. I know that voice. And that's what happens to us when we become Christians, is the voice that was maybe muddled or garbled, or we don't really understand who this God is, who this Jesus is, he, he opens our, our hearts and spiritually in a way that we can begin to understand his voice, not all in one shot, but, but, but over time and as we mature, we go, oh, that's the, that's the voice of, of God speaking. That's, that's God's heart. That's God's character. That's God's truth speaking to me as opposed to the enemy. Because if you read in John's gospel earlier in, in John chapter um, 8, what does he say about the enemy? That the, 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 the tongue of the enemy is just lies and more lies. That's his character, right? In, in John chapter 8, verse, uh, we'll jump down to 45 or 40. Uh, 44, you are my father, the devil, and you, your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. 
The only words the enemy ever speaks to us is condemnation and lies. He doesn't know how to speak the truth. He can't. Because he's opposed to God and God's reality. But Jesus always speaks the truth to his people and always says there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That if you're in Christ Jesus and you're hearing condemnation, guess what? That's not Jesus speaking. Huh? That's hard to believe, isn't it? That that when you feel like a failure and you fell on your face one more time and Jesus just says, nope, sorry. Yeah, good try. Maybe you need to try a little harder. That's not the voice of Jesus. It's the voice of the enemy. But when you believe that there's no more forgiveness, that God has ran out of grace, that he cannot forgive me one more time because of what I've done or what I've said or what I've thought, and he says, no more forgiveness for you. That's not Jesus. That's the enemy. Because God's mercy and grace and forgiveness never run out. Because the cross proves it and the resurrection proves it. And so the battle for us is always these voices, right? These, these things. And so the, the power for living is to know that God says our name and says, you're my son, you're my daughter, that I, that I love you, that I laid my life down for you, that I, I rose for you. Now, if you don't believe in the power of, of God speaking personally to someone, you, you remember in, in the story of Lazarus, I mentioned on Easter Sunday last week, at the end of the story of Lazarus in John, John uh, chapter 11, Jesus is with Lazarus. He's with his friends. He's going to do this miracle. In verse 40, he says, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account for the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. I love that. So Jesus waits four days because he's like, I really need to make a point to them that they'll believe in me and trust me that everything's going to be okay that I am creator God, that I am redeemer God. That's a side point. But notice verse 43. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Lazarus, come back to life. Christy, come back to life. Trey, come back to life. I love you. I've laid my life down for you. That's what God does to us. That's what resurrection says. The tomb's not empty. Come back. Come alive in me. So this new power for living is knowing that we have this God who knows us personally. We know, can know him personally. And he gives us a power that, that, that there are all these competing voices. There are all these things of condemnation and, and anxiety and fear and things that, that we believe is true of ourselves, but it's not true if we get close to the scriptures. And that's what it's so important for us to be students of the scriptures and to know actually what it says, not what we think it says or some weird blog says. It's to know the promises that are before us. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There is forgiveness. There is hope. And what's important about this, this new power for living, is also to remember it's not an individualistic, kind of isolated thing. It's a, it's a communal endeavor. It's why we do this on Sundays. It's why we gather together. It's why we sing these songs and hear the word again and take uh, the Lord's Supper, is that we need a community of people to, to remind us of these things, to say, that's not true. That's not true of you. There is forgiveness to be had. 
God is merciful. The tomb is empty, right? We need, we need each other to say that to each other in, in city groups and in conversation and over coffee and, and in sermons and, and all of these things. As we serve together, we're, we're reminded again that God has called us not to just sit back, to, but to lay our lives down to one another, that we're servants of God, that we're worshipers of God, we're the family of God, we're learners, disciples of God, we're missionaries of God, that we need each other to remind us of those things that God has spoken to us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his his book, famous book called Life Together, he says this, let him who cannot be alone beware of community. Let him who is not in community beware of being alone. Each by itself has profound perils and pitfalls. One who wants fellowship without solitude plunges into the void of words and feelings. And the one who seeks solitude without fellowship perishes in the abyss of vanity, self-infatuation, and despair. I call it living in my head. Anybody live in their head? <clears throat> you know what I mean by that? So uh, <clears throat> a lot of you know I'm an only child. So that means I live in my head a lot. Because that skill was developed over many, many years. That's why I have many imaginary friends, even to this day. Uh, I have imaginary brothers and sisters, ones my heart longed for that my parents were just like, nope, not having more kids. Thank you. I'm so glad I'm loved around here. I have images of bunk beds that I never had because I didn't have those brothers or sisters. And so I live in my head a lot. I believe a lot of things because that's how I process the world, being an only child. But not until years later when I became a Christian and found myself in this, this family of God, this community, is that it's really good for us to not live in our heads because there's things we, don't, we believe that aren't true of us and there's things that are, that are wonky. And so we need to walk this out and live this out together as a family. All these swirling words. And that's why when I, I meet Christians, I come into our church and they... For years I've been doing ministry. Those that are isolated usually have the weirdest views about God. Hands down. Those that are not connected to other believers in a community of faith typically have very wonky views about God that are not even close to what the scriptures have revealed to us. It's because they're trying to live it out in their own head. Rather than learning from other people because the Holy Spirit is at work in all of us and the gifts of the body so, so it's not a, this new powerful living is not just God speaking to us and we just kind of frolic in the field with Jesus walking around and singing Kumbaya, but we do it together as a community. And then lastly, <clears throat> sorry, my voice is <clears throat> going out. A new relationship to enjoy. New relationship to enjoy. Where do I get that from? Notice in verse 17 and 18, kind of a strange kind of out of the left field if if you're familiar with the story, but Jesus says in verse 17, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. There's a new relationship to be enjoyed. So Jesus gives Mary this kind of mild rebuke here. Like, don't, don't cling to me. It wasn't, don't touch me, or <laughs> there's a lot of weird, people are weird. Um, a lot of weird commentaries that would say things like this. Well, actually, what's happening here is that, you know, Jesus has this new resurrected body, and so he's just like, don't touch me yet. I, I haven't fully kind of percolated yet. Like, someone actually said that. 
I don't think that's what that means. That he's giving this mild, mild rebuke because it wouldn't be appropriate for her to touch Jesus on any level, which doesn't make any sense, right? Jesus let women, you know, cry on his feet and wipe up the tears off his feet, right? We're going to see with Thomas that he let him touch the, his side and his hands where the nails went in, right? That, that's not what's going on here. What's going on here is I need to ascend to the Father, as we just sang about and said in our confession as well. Back to the Father, why? Because John's Gospel has been talking about it all the time. I have to send the Holy Spirit. So that you can have a new, renewed relationship. That there's something important that's vitally important that, that I must go away eventually so that I can send the helper, the counselor, the one who's going to remind you of, of all the things I taught to you that's going to live in you and dwell in you for the rest of your days. There's going to be a new relationship to enjoy and it's not going to be marked in or hemmed in by geographic location. Because remember, they're walking with Jesus, but he doesn't leave 30 miles from his house. Wherever you go, the Spirit of God will be with you. That you can enjoy me anytime in any place. It's one of the beauties of the gospel that God gives us his personal presence in the Holy Spirit. It's actually a marker of our, our, of our assurance. John, same John who wrote the letters of John, <clears throat> says in first, uh, his letter, 1 John, um, you can find it, 4, verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he is in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. The, the, the marker of this new relationship is that we have the Holy Spirit of God living in us. That if we believe in Christ, just as Paul would say in Romans, that any believer in Christ receives the Holy Spirit. There's not a, a, a second baptism that's coming later. The moment you believe, the moment you say yes to Jesus or, or whatever that looked like in your life, you are justified and you receive the Holy Spirit. And now you have this new relationship to God. This personal presence of Jesus is with you always and forever because the tomb is empty. Now, the reason I say that, because I think this is really important, is I think for a lot of us, we, we think the Christian life is, is some kind of technique or some kind of formula that we have to figure out. So, I mean, we have a whole Christian industry of books and curriculum, and, you know, here's how you grow in the Lord, and do these five things, and do these seven things, and if you don't read this book, then you're not going to really grow, and it's all formulaic and technique, and here's how you should do spend time with the Lord, and, and these are the days you have to do that, and this is the music that you have to play, and this is the kind of church you have to be, be part of. But the beauty of the Holy Spirit is it's not about technique or formula. God's presence is with you always. Now, there's things like prayer and Bible stuff, of course. Those are all part of it. We have these habits and disciplines that they will. But there's, there's, no, there's no technique or formula that we have to engage in or uncover. Faith in Christ, we've been given the Spirit of God so that we can walk with Jesus wherever we are. Like, like Jesus is with you in your cubicle tomorrow. Do you know that? Like, you can do spreadsheets for the glory of God. I know you're not excited about that, but he's with you. That before you walk into that meeting and you know that you have to have that hard conversation with your boss who's just not a kind person and you'd rather stick pencils in your eyeballs, <laughs> Jesus is with you. The Holy Spirit is with you. Help me, God. So I don't have to stick pencils in my eyeballs again. 
That when you're losing your mind and you're trying to get that baby asleep, or when your wife goes on a retreat and leaves you with all the children, <laughs> and there's so many of them, and they're always hungry and needy, Jesus is with me. Help me, oh God. Help me not stick pencils in my eyeballs. There's a new relationship that Mary could enjoy. There's a new relationship that Thomas could enjoy that was different than them walking with him in the flesh. That it was good, John says, that that I go away so that the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, can come and be with you. So whether you're in Africa or whether you're in Kansas City, God is with us. And I find that these these encounters... with Jesus really kind of show us this relationship that is the same kind of relationship Jesus had with the Father. This loving, normal, relational, talking in normal language to the Father and communing with him is the same relationship that you and I can have with God of heaven and earth. There's no technique or formula. It's just simple trust in this resurrected Jesus. That's all it is. It's a day-by-day, moment-by-moment Trust relationship with the Creator God, and it's going. There's going to be ups and downs, just like Mary, who was confused, wasn't sure, but by the Spirit, He's He's with us. And every every week, we have this this great joy of remembering that God is with us, uh, specifically um, through the the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup. It's it's when when the Apostle Paul talks about the Lord's Supper. He says some interesting things to us. Is that when we take the supper, he, he says this in, in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so there's a, a past element to what we're doing here this morning. Remember what he accomplished on the cross. Remember what he accomplished in his resurrection. But he also said in the same way also he took the cup and saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. There's a present reality of grace that as we do this, as we break the bread and as we dip it in the cup, God's grace meets us, God's spirit meets us. And so we're comforted by this same grace that Jesus accomplished what he said he would accomplish, that he did walk out of the tomb and Mary did encounter him and Thomas did encounter him. The new creation has come. But there's also a future reality to all of this for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the lord's death until he come so there was an inaugural resurrection but there's also another resurrection that's going to happen when he comes to renew renew and restore the entire earth including ourselves and he gives us new resurrected bodies so when we take the supper there's a lot going on here there's a, a past reality of grace there's a present reality of grace and there's a future hope of grace that's all found in this messiah who walked out of the tomb and the same messiah that Mary encountered so so, so as you you take the the bread the way we do it is you break off a piece of the bread we dip it in the cup there'll be two lines up in the front and as you you break that off and you you dip it in the cup i want you to to remember all of these things that that are happening right here what happened in the past, what you have right now, and what you have looking forward to in the future. That just like Mary who was confused, God comes and meets us, often in very tangible ways. 
And just like Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 11, if there's, there's sin, if there's, there's things that have, have gotten in the way of communing with this creator, redeemer, God, and Jesus Christ, he would want you to lay those things down, confess those things. He loves to forgive. That's what he does. That's who he is. So, so lay those things down. There's nothing that, that God doesn't know about you, doesn't know that you, what you've thought this week or where you've been in the past or where you're going to be in the future. He knows all those things, and yet he's outed us by the cross, and there's nothing you can't be scared of to confess to him, and he is free to forgive, and he loves to forgive. So I'd encourage you to do that. If you're not a believer in Christ, we'd ask that you just stay seated. There's some prayers in the city life uh, that you can think and meditate on, and we'd love to talk to you more about that um, if you have questions about the sermon or about God or Christ or the church or anything, I'd love to chat with you about that. So with that, let us pray. Father, thank you for a good um, start this morning to this series. Thank you for Mary and her encounter with Jesus that, that in a weird way, just like us, resurrection isn't expected. It's not normal. But it's exactly what you've did and who you are and, and that you're alive now that we can relate to you because you're alive as Hebrews says you, you know our weaknesses Jesus knows our weaknesses because he was tempted in every way yet without sin and so we can talk to you like a loving father who understands how weak we are who understands how terrible the weak went or understands our anxiety or fear or abandonment or whatever it is that we can come to you and, and because of the resurrection and say God here I am here's my struggle here's my sin here's my pain here's my my, my fears because everything changed when he walked out of the tomb Help us believe that, help us walk in that, help us find grace in that, help us find comfort and power in that to know there's a God who speaks our name and gives us a new name in him. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.